0: Hello, welcome, and a very happy new year. I'm Dr Joanna Bucknell, and you're listening to episode 21 of Tate. that's T-A-I-T, which is short for talking about immersive theater. As the title might signal, this podcast is all about immersive theater and the folk involved in making it, producing it, writing about it, performing it, and sometimes even going to it. So without further ado, here is the first episode of 2018 for you. I'm here at Colab Factory in London uh, with actor, director, educator and political activist, if that's correct, <laughs> wow! Zach oh. Polanski. Hi. Hello, thank you so much for joining me. And we are in an incredible kind of back room behind the scenes in the factory. It's we
1: can barely see each other, but it's kind of <laughs> <Yeah>. cool. <laughs>
0: We're sat at a massive desk. If you could imagine it, it looks like something out of the 19... 19- 20s, I would say. Yeah, no, I'd
1: go with that period.
0: I feel like we should have big fat cigars.
1: <laughs> it does feel like someone's going to burst in at any moment and give us a performance.
0: <laughs> Maybe if we're lucky. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so, uh, Zach, can you uh, tell the folks listening a little bit about yourself, your background and your kind of training?
1: Yeah, you covered it in the in the long list of words <laughs> at the beginning. Um, I saw a play at Soho Theatre two nights ago called um, uh, John Pointing, mm-hmm. um, and it was a stand-up uh, show, uh, uh, not immersive, sadly, but about an actor um, talking about his process and using lots of wanky phrases and, yeah. and ideas
2: <laughs> and he came on
1: by saying I'm an actor writer Barry you know no no etc so I'm really aware of doing that um, but I'm involved in lots of things so politics is probably at the heart of what I do yeah. um, but that's a more recent thing um, uh, I'm an actor actually as probably unusual for these podcasts I come from a more traditional background mm-hmm. so I trained in Atlanta Georgia um, in Shakespeare no. i guess the atlanta georgia isn't so traditional but the the shakespeare, <laughs> the was. shakespeare yeah. when i moved back to london in auditions people are always like why did you move to atlanta georgia to study shakespeare mm-hmm. i never had a good answer other than you know, <laughs> seemed like an exciting thing to do um and i'm also a facilitator and um, yeah. i work as a counselor at drama schools uh with young actors musicians dancers uh-huh. um often talking to them about kind of their problems in terms of self-esteem or auditioning technique mm-hmm. but frequently the conversations become political or about what sort of work they want to make so Uh, There is a long list of words, but I guess essentially they're all about communicating and they're all about um, being with someone in a space, which conveniently for me is some of the the heart of immersive theatre.
0: And that's been really brought to the fore at the moment as well, hasn't it, with all of the kind of accusations and some of the practices in our industry as well have really been kind of put under the spotlight at the moment, which I think is interesting. And there is this attitude that you should just kind of put up with it because that's how it works, especially in traditional kind of acting circles. And I find that hugely
1: problematic and um, totally I, I went to a um i'm really rubbish at remembering names which is gonna be really frustrating but i went to a convention uh, two weeks ago which was about documenting immersive theater i'm mm-hmm. um, an uh, archivist and they were talking about the um political um relationships within theatre yeah. that often the director is at the, the top so then the archivist feels that they can't um interfere enough to say oh don't throw that in the bin or can I just catch this moment because they don't want to interrupt the process yeah and then someone spoke very passionately about how actually that is part of a process of course and then being in the room is, is that conversation and then um, I spoke up that um I think as an immersive actor as well um you actually have a lot more power than a traditional actor because in every moment you're making decisions
2: Absolutely. as is the
1: show caller um, which you know previously would have been a stage manager who was often just running straight off a schedule and sheet and didn't have any artistic process at all mm-hmm. whereas actually they're arguably as creative as the director once the director's left well, the room
0: moments are everything in immersive performance Absolutely. and time and exactly the right time <laughs> for and, sure. and so that becomes a real art I think to being able to judge that being able to know that being able to feel the room in that way and I think it's the same for actors and for whoever's calling the show has that kind of control. So I think traditional roles are really blurred actually in immersive theatre in ways that they aren't in other practices, which I think is quite interesting. And um, in terms of documentation, I've, I wrote an article, no, no book chapter, oh, I kind of <laughs> remember at the moment, I've been really busy, um, with Kirsty Sedgman, exactly about the fact that narratives, and this is about much more kind of traditional theatre, but how narratives are being left out when they don't meet kind of the official narrative. Uh, So they're just not being included, um, Mm -hmm. and that people, sometimes if the audience posts things that upset the cast or upset the director, they're being Mm. kind of removed from that public forum, which I think is really interesting, because actually what they're doing is erasing kind of a whole aspect of kind of the legacy of that piece of work, if it doesn't meet kind of the the public persona that they'd like it to have, or the way they'd like it to be remembered, or the way they'd like it to be discussed.
1: That's so interesting. And uh, this it slightly relates, although it's tenuous, but I think, you know, for it to spring into mind, it must be directly related. That During The Drowned Man, there was a a Facebook spoilers group Mm. of people who were very, very, very keen and very obsessive. And I I wasn't one of them, I promise. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But one of them started writing to the actors who were in the piece. And it was one of their birthdays when they went to The Drowned Man. And one of the characters, I won't say who because I don't want to start... dobbing actors in it, and <laughs> um, said happy birthday to them as part of the performance. Mm. Um, and Punchdrunk, I think, really um, told the actor off yeah. and said, you know, you can't blur the real world in this imaginary world. Right. And I thought that was interesting that in yeah. so many ways they're a theatre company and immersive theatre is something that is all about blurring boundaries and all about um, playing with the rules. Yet Absolutely. they still thought there were some rules that just can't be breached. And this isn't even a criticism of, of that decision. I just thought it was an interesting decision. That, that
0: is an interesting decision because in some ways it's a similar decision to ignore the group of people in the room acknowledging that they're there it's a kind of almost because that body's real that person's real operating within that space so to potentially ignore that is quite an interesting kind of aesthetic and ethical
1: but yeah it's, it's some interesting questions and i it think it lies it and um, so as i've listened to a lot of these podcasts i've noticed there's uh, often a chat between the difference between the word actor and performer yeah and i think i'm probably going to lie on the opposite side of the argument of most people and mm-hmm. um, because i would still call myself an actor okay. um, because i think immersive theater at its best is about listening and responding in the moment mm-hmm. and for me that's not performing performing is where you're kind of presenting something yeah and someone can engage with it or they can't whereas actor. The, the key for me is the word, and it's just semantic, but obviously semantics are important, yeah. is in the word act, um, yeah. which again, as someone who's politically active, that's really important yeah. to me. Um, and uh, I went to see an immersive piece a couple of weeks ago, which I won't name because I'm about to criticise it. Um, <laughs> that had this um, beautiful moment where it was immersive um, in terms of the audience were walking around and I, could, I was impressed by how much the actors were listening and responding. I thought, what a beautiful piece. It wasn't doing anything huge. It was just very subtle. And then they started to perform scenes in a much more traditional way, and then it became a site-specific piece. And just as I was yeah. watching it, I just thought they're just not listening to each other. Like they—they mm-hmm. they obviously haven't rehearsed this bit as hard. They're all saying lines at each other, and suddenly now they feel like performers, whereas moments ago they felt like actors to me.
0: Yeah, and I think the the most frustrating thing as an audience is when you're kind of you're invited to either engage or invited to respond, and then it's completely disregarded and has no impact on the moment and has no impact on kind of everything moving forward and for me that's always the times when I enjoy it the least oh, absolutely it's when I feel actually that wall like okay so you're just going to carry on regardless sure. even though I'm like right here in front of you You just asked me a question I responded and you're going to completely just disregard what I've said which I think is again is an interesting decision to make and I think again we need some And I think this whole field is so open. Absolutely.
2: It's (laughs) exciting.
0: It's really exciting. And although there's some great kind of distinctions and definitions of immersive theatre as a form, kind of a whole form, it's now all the other things that sit within that that I think people are now starting to look at and starting to talk about and these ideas about the difference between potentially an actor, the difference between a performer. And it's really always hard, because I never even see myself as as either, really. I always think of myself as a facilitator.
1: Uh, Yeah, you've said that, and particularly because you do durational work,
0: Absolutely, I do durational, and it's autobiographical, and it's not fictive. Mm -hmm. So it's operating off slightly different kind of agendas. And again, I think there's some problems that come with when things... Because I think immersive theatre is something quite particular and specific, and I think there's lots of other practices that are interactive or participatory Mm -hmm. that actually are lacking some of those fundamental things that immersive theatre has and it doesn't mean they're not as good which is the problem at the moment is what that's what tends to happen is it's kind of like oh it's not this particular model that everybody is so used to so therefore it's not as good absolutely but actually what it's doing is something very different and something very aside but with a relationship to that kind of central idea of immersive theatre and I think a good actor good actors are key to creating that fictive site to genuinely immerse someone in immersive theater I think
1: it's crucial and J- <laughs> Jason Warren in his book um, creating immersive worlds yeah he talks uh, in one chapter and I, I just think he put it beautifully that if you take a traditional piece of theater and you don't rehearse it and drill it as well as you would with a traditional piece of theater and you then put it in an immersive site specific space you're essentially just presenting substandard scenes yeah to an audience in a more jumbled way yeah. which which is bizarre and and yeah. not attractive to anybody so. no
0: I find that really strange and I work with structures and rules, so it's, it's exactly the same. There's this assumption that you don't have to rehearse because you can't kind of rehearse. But it's like, no, but we have to play the rules. We have to know our rules so well, and we have to know them as familiarly as any other, as if we were working kind of with a script yes. or with a text, because actually those rules are what replace kind of narrative in those structures. And so actually it takes more kind of logistical rehearsal when you're dealing with mechanics rather than potentially dealing with script. And I think immersive theatre does both, because it has to deal with script, fictive space, holding together those worlds, yeah. and mechanic of how you manoeuvre people around those space. So I think immersive theatre is kind of holding all of those things sort of in, uh, one, totally. in one place.
1: Um, I think there's an argument that it, it can be easier for the actor, not in rehearsal, but once you perform it. And, and all I mean by that is obviously there's lots of things that are more difficult. But in terms of in a traditional play you often improvise in rehearsal what happens when you're off stage, yes, whereas if you're in an yeah. open world immersive piece and you're in front of the audience the entire time you are physically going through the experience your character is going through, yes. um, in chronological order, often in time order so there's maybe less kind of um, pretending or less um, artificial thinking yeah. although of course there's then a whole set of challenges about logistics, time <laughs> uh, relationship with the audience etc that yeah, you yeah. wouldn't have in a, in a piece. Um, but I think those dynamics are, are, are so interesting and again I think we need to be challenging them all the time yes um yeah. and what i found is uh, particularly in london but uh, in fact i went to denmark last week to see uh, blast Theory's, uh aarhus oh
0: wow how um, was that
1: I, it was fantastic it was it was a really interesting piece of theatre and it um I actually went, and I don't mind criticising this piece, uh, which is Punch Drunk's uh, Cabaret, which I also went to Did see. Did
0: you get, I couldn't, I used about eight different oh, email I'm sorry, addresses. Now I feel really guilty. Right. No, no, don't feel guilty. And I was like, God damn it, no ticket for me.
1: Um, I'm going to preface it with a controversial <laughs> statement because I think it's become cool to knock The Drown Man. But in my opinion, I think The Drown Man was one of the best pieces of theatre that I, I can remember seeing in my lifetime. Um, mm-hmm. I went 52 times which is an excessive wow. amount of times oh to really God. get into it. And I think there's legitimate criticism that if people just went once or twice and um, they struggled to, to kind of really It's so vast. Exactly.
0: It's so vast. And I agree. I want I wanted to go many 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 more times but for various restrictions I couldn't which is why Mask of the Red Death is always for like piece of theatre which was also my favorite but for very different reasons because I'm am a rummager as well. I like to rummage through stuff and I thought Mask of Red Death really sort of let me
1: let me do that. Sure, totally. <laughs> um, and uh, I think maybe it was my 52nd time of, of The Traum Man or 51st time that I was in the building and I just remember having this moment that I'd never had in any of the times where I just thought, Oh, I'm bored, I'm, I'm done with this piece and that's not a criticism obviously because if you go 52 times and I think you're entitled to get to a point where you go I've kind of done this yeah, now. Kind of done everything now. Um, but then I realised in all those times I've been i would never had, and I know it always comes back to this, i would never had any agency, I've never been able to change anything and yeah. um, particularly as someone involved in politics that really frustrated me and I thought this is an interesting kind of message that they're sending out yeah. here. Um, so then I was really excited when I heard about Cabaret because I didn't know a lot about it, but I thought they're trying to deal with that question. Yes. And they're trying to piece together... Um, I was in The People's Revolt at the time, um, yeah. which, you know, I would say has that opposite, um, both aesthetic and dynamic to to The Drowned Man, mm-hmm. which is the audience have agency, they're making choices, absolutely. and those choices and should matter. Impact
0: Impact on, on potentially what... Or at least you feel like it impacts on what potentially could happen. Yeah, absolutely. In
1: <laughs> fact, Heist is probably a better example for... Um, I would say the audience had more impact in Heist because of yes. the logistical challenges. How many
0: of, endings were there? I can't remember. I uh, think they make it up time every they, time they say it. Yeah, I say it was like... <laughs> in two nine, billion. Yeah, it's like two billion different yeah. endings.
1: <laughs> no, there definitely were a lot of endings, though, and a, a lot of um, different ways the route could go. And audiences could genuinely um, throw them into a spin, I think. Yeah. I've heard yeah. Andrew and John tell the story several times of a lady who went maybe eight or nine times, yes. walked yeah. straight up to a guard and said, we're here to steal a painting. and ah! exactly. You're like, oh God,
0: you've basically broken the show
1: <laughs> exactly but the fact they dealt with it and didn't break the show yeah. shows how flexible that model was and um, the Tower of London I absolutely adored the show but just the log- logistical challenges of being in the historical space meaning that there's only so many ways your audience could go and um, I found it really yes. interesting because I also come from a, a hypnotherapy background and a hypnosis yeah. background so I started to we didn't have a long enough run for me to really play with this as much as I wanted to mm-hmm. but by because uh, I did both iterations of it there was only me and Liam Fleming I think who did yes, both he iterations. did both yeah. so we had more time to play um but uh finding ways to phrase choices to the audience mm-hmm. that would make it sound like a very open choice whereas really they only did have three choices that were already legitimate Absolutely. and viable um I don't know how much John and Andrew was doing that, so I'm not saying they endorse that, that approach if they listen to this podcast. <laughs> no, like, what was Zach doing? It's really interesting, actually, because
0: while I was doing my PhD, it's one of the things that I was talking about, with This, which is this idea of, in, from a slightly different perspective, but this idea of social schema. So okay. according to cognitive science, um, they've sort of are beginning to empirically prove um, phenomenology, which okay. has been around for a long time. Sure. So this idea that we're embodied and mind and body is one and all of that. Um, but cognitive science have now suggested that although our architecture is constructed through learned behavior actually they become quite fixed neural pathways Mm -hmm. in terms of how you perceive and how you make decisions and they're highly rooted in social constructs and social (laughs) architecture which of course people have theorized about for a really long time and now they're starting to find empirical proof so once you have generated specific neural pathways for acknowledging and recognizing things then the likelihood is you'll make they always make those decisions in that way because actually you literally can't see outside totally your box that you've generated through the very specific your genetics your context and your environment and your upbringing and so there's now a lot of empirical evidence to suggest actually people are quite easy to manipulate if you understand how some of those things operate in terms of offering people choices and i guess hypnotherapy which i don't know a great deal about it works of some of those yeah those principles are definitely there principles. and you gave a very
1: articulate scientific explanation my, like <laughs> my, my pop science catchphrase is uh <laughs> cells that wire together fire together which is essentially saying what, what yeah, you just absolutely in, a, in, a, in absolutely. a shorter phrase um and then to to, to f- finish the story so then i went to cabaret um knowing that they've probably taken elements of if not explicitly although i i suspect maybe so of people's revolt and of heist and of various shows and place them into what appeared to be a game with with a narrative, right? Um, but in my opinion, spectacularly failed, and I mean that in the most loving way possible because I think it's exciting they tried to do something different. No, I do.
0: I think failure. It's one of the first things you, where anyone who works in education tries to give people the confidence, yes, to totally. have the sense to engage in failure because you mm-hmm. learn the most from failure. But also things come out of failure, discoveries come out of failure, and I think culturally it seems as this really negative thing mm-hmm. but I, I always find that strange because I'm I l- quite like failure and the poetics of failure and the idea that failure becomes a site for something undiscovered or something new or something learned
1: and so for me
2: failure is really so, exciting. I was just
1: on the, the phone to a friend who's performing in a panto at Stratford East today it's their opening day and they're always oh, quite wow. big pantos. Oh uh, Yeah exactly <laughs> and um, it's their first preview and he just said they're not Ready and they've a not got the finale dance, although it is a preview. And I just found myself saying to him in a panto, "If you're ready on your first show, you've not tried hard enough. Like it should be, there should be so much going on that yeah. it should almost be impossible to open in anything but a state of chaos. Well, and risk
0: it, is exciting, totally. and, and risk has to be taken for that. But if you take a risk, there's potential failure. But also, that shouldn't you shouldn't be scared of doing that. Yeah,
1: absolutely. And if so, if you're doing an immersive theatre piece, and your performers and director and whoever else is involved isn't in a heightened performance state in that first show, of <laughs> peripheral vision and adrenaline and, oh my God, what is about to happen, then the piece probably isn't even worth putting on because no. the audience are going to be bored. So it's got to be alive in that moment.
0: My well, students ask me if I still get nervous when I perform and I'm like, hell yeah. Of course. Absolutely. And when I don't, I'll stop mm-hmm. because that's probably the time to stop. But I can't imagine that will ever... I hope that never happens. I yeah, hope I definitely. never get bored of performing and not nervous. <laughs> and I
1: think it's, yeah, it's about what you do with those nerves, isn't it? So Absolutely. we've all seen performances that appear nervous and as an audience we don't feel secure. No. And then we've seen many performances where the actor has adrenaline yeah. and we wouldn't know if it was nerves or just they're ready to go. Yeah. actually it is. Well, it becomes often. an
0: energy, doesn't it? When, you, when totally. you have experience and training and technique and you know how to use those nerves, it becomes a kind of an exciting energy, I think, for the, the audience very much pick up on. Which so if is if you don't have that, how do you do
1: that? <laughs> well, completely. And what what is really interesting to me, when immersive theatre goes wrong, um, and again, this is about risk, is suppose that uh, an audi- uh, uh, a cast get very used to the, the uh, motions and they're not really listening anymore and I'm always coming back to this concept mm-hmm. of listening. Um, then actually, the audience are in a state of nervousness because they're <laughs> in an experience that they don't understand. Yeah. So they're responding truthfully in every moment, which is what the... Actors or performers' job is doing, and the actors and performers are faking it and calling it in. So actually, yeah. it should be the actors um, paying to see an audience respond truthfully in a moment from <laughs> the other exactly. way. Exactly.
0: I think this. I mean, because of the nature of risk embedded in immersive theatre, mm-hmm. I think it's hard to call it in, if that makes sense. Yes. In some respects, because every night you have a whole group of people who are going to respond potentially in, in different and new ways. So every night it's very different.
1: Um, I do agree I think if you're doing it properly the bit I would disagree with is I think I've seen plenty of immersive theatre where I felt that the um, cast are calling it in in terms of Uh, they've seen this scene so many times, they only know it can go one of three ways, depending on what the audience yeah, do. Yeah. And they're saying, oh, it's option B, and they, they, they don't spot the nuance sometimes.
0: I find that often then ends up just feeling so specific when things like that happen, because you feel like you're just observing. That's them, very true. Rather than participating.
1: Yeah, and I think that can happen even more in promenade immersive theatre, where you're being walked through an experience, and you might have choices along that experience, but actually the choices that you pick. Yeah, ultimately um, the same So thing. when it's done well... Um, I went to see Inside Pussy Riot uh, the other day and there were definitely um, moments of it where those choices... um, I saw a dress rehearsal, so I I shouldn't comment on the piece too much because it (laughs) it wasn't finished yet. Um, But there were moments that it was clear that the actors were really listening to you and they were really waiting for you to make a a decision there. And partly that's because it's a dress rehearsal, so the very first time... (laughs) they're
0: going, oh my God! (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) How is this going (laughs) to go?
1: And I think a lot of this comes from the fact that um, I'm really obsessed with the work of Meisner um and listing things
2: yes and
1: um there's an exercise that a good friend of mine who works at the RSC, aileen uh, gonzalez uh she worked at arts Ed for a while mm-hmm. running vma um where i work um and she <laughs> always does an exercise <laughs> on the first day which i'm going to spoil now if anyone ever listens I to the podcast and then all does all a lot. workshop <laughs> but she gets someone to stand in front of a room and she gets people to list which is in meisner uh, listing everything you're seeing so um, they're nodding their head they're they're frowning they're tilting their head mm-hmm. they just smiled so they're listing everything for every moment. And she says 99% of the time people miss blinking. They never call a blink, yet it's happening all the time. Oh. And it's because we've stopped as performers, actors, human beings, really watching yeah. something new for the first time.
2: Yes. And I
1: don't think this is just immersive theater. It's at the heart of acting. But I think what's beautiful about immersive theater is there is nowhere to hide. The audience are right by you. And if you're not really listening and watching and in that moment um, and alive, then they can smell bullshit, um, probably more than if you're on the stage. Oh, and right, that's yeah. what I think is so exciting about uh, resume jumping around but I think there's been a snobbery towards immersive theatre as well from um, uh, some traditional in inverted commas actors, conventional actors that it's a gimmick and I think sometimes it can be a gimmick to yeah. replace kind of uh, weak or um, bored or um, tired acting mm. but I think when it's not a gimmick I challenge any actor as a training exercise to um, get in the ring so to speak and, and um, be alive and be in the moment.
0: Well I think we've slid nicely now past past the point of being just considered a flash in the pan oh, for sure.
2: gimmick <laughs> <Yeah>.
0: <laughs> so it's nice that we've kind of sort of got past that kind of goalpost now and now people are really starting to understand that it's a kind of it's emerged really as a discipline and as a field of practice that is only going to develop more and more i th- i think
2: yeah
1: absolutely
0: uh, maybe that's my real hopefulness <laughs> no, i think i think the you know the, I think we have the cat
1: that. the cat's out of the bag and um there's, there's always a danger, and I know you're very good with this on the podcast, that we talk about immersive theatre like it's a new thing. And for a while I was running um, political projects in Eastern Europe um, that were using immersive theatre to create political action and activism.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And then um, when I would go over and start to talk about immersive theatre, they would have no idea what I was talking about. Mm-hmm. And then on the second day, um, during the training, rather than say I'm going to demonstrate immersive theatre, I would begin to play a name game with them again. That was the same name game we played on the first day. Yeah. So a bit like I was losing my mind. And then very often they would say, we- we've done this already. And I'd pretend I didn't know what I was talking about and carry on. And then someone would come in and interrupt. And then suddenly these students were in a piece of immersive theatre. So we would mm-hmm. demonstrate a piece of immersive theatre rather than explain a piece of immersive yeah. theatre. And then they would explore the whole building. There'd be various things going on in the building. Um, and they loved it. Um, but more often than not, when it finished, they would go, ah, you mean Labyrinth Theatre? Yeah. Uh, and I'd never heard of Labyrinth <clears> Theatre until this I point. I have heard
0: that term. Um, in Romania, particularly,
1: I think they've been doing this for decades. So um, to write that down. <laughs> it's interesting that often it feels like a really, really new and kind of shiny thing. But actually the idea of... Uh, because again, in traditional writing, what is an author or a playwright doing? If they're not immersing their audience with beautiful words and scenery and sounds, and so that's immersive, but it's just not quite immersive as how we mean it in probably in most contexts.
0: Yeah, and actually, this kind of work, especially in terms of political uh, political political activism, has been around since the nineteen twenties. Yeah, for sure. In a really kind of uh, visible way,
1: just cool different things. Yeah, totally. And, <laughs> and and with that I'm really excited where virtual reality takes it next. So um mm-hmm. I do an incredible amount of campaigning and just uh, I've noticed when I knock on doors, sometimes you're almost trying to paint with words the future of, of what would happen with this vote or that vote, or very often more than not, the worst case scenario yeah. of what will happen if they, you know, don't vote. Um and uh that almost becomes theatrical sometimes because 'cause you're having these conversations and um, Sometimes when the door isn't slammed in your face for the person on the other end of the door, you can tell he's <laughs> almost enjoying the conversation of, of, yeah. of what it could be like. But what will it be like when we can give a virtual reality set and put someone in it and they can literally walk around the Britain around world, of yeah. you know what we want or the Britain of mm-hmm. where, where things are going?
0: Well, I think that's really interesting. And actually there's been huge amounts of strides forward using VR. I think VR is problematic in terms of theatre engagement because I think it does something... Um, which actually is very fundamentally against what immersive theatre does, which yeah. is it separates and isolates sure. in some respects. So until the technology potentially can be more portable or can be more collaborative, uh-huh. I think it's problematic. I think mean, AR has made much more uh, a kind of impact on immersive performance, but that's just uh, my opinion. No, yeah, but I'm in terms to... of medicine and training and therapy, actually mm-hmm. VR has been shown already in some big research projects that I know about to be hugely beneficial and to be genuinely a way forward where in places at the moment where harm (coughs) is caused or has to be caused, it can be mitigated by using that kind of technology. So like surgeons can use it without having to train on kind of real bodies. People can be put inside things, uh, inside situations can be put inside those feelings to start to find ways of working through them or dealing with them. So I think VR is really struggling commercially, I think, to take off because it's expensive. You need space. Totally. You look like a fool. You can injure yourself quite easily. (laughs) But I think actually in training sectors and in the medical profession, it's taken off massively. Ah, Okay. I see it developing very much kind of in that route.
1: Yeah, that's really exciting. But maybe
0: it's because I haven't played with it enough. And I'd quite like more opportunities to kind of have a go and see what the possible implications are but whenever I kind of come across it I've had to wear these big things I have big cores attached to me and I'm like oh this is quite <laughs> sort of isolating and actually almost the opposite I'm so aware of my body yeah I don't feel like I'm I can be kind of put inside something so I'm I'm skeptical on the and that's fair enough and <laughs>
1: um, what I particularly love about what a company like Difference <clears throat> Engine do and it's probably clear but I'm a huge fan of, uh, of John and Andrew is that they're pushing the tech um, yeah. and they're constantly trying to stay one step ahead of where the market is with things and theirs is
0: very much about AR isn't it it's very augmented reality and without a think... doubt
1: um but they're also not losing the heart of storytelling and the heart of just putting a person in front of you um i performed the new me bum bum train um for months on end actually most nights of the week um, it was a very specific role that mm-hmm. i think it was one of the girl who's a good friend of my donna would play so the two of us would alternate this role and then everyone else in the scene obviously they don't want to talk about the scene. So I, <laughs> well, I couldn't get a ticket either. So
2: um,
1: it's ridiculous. I think they calculated that. I probably uh, saw, I think it was over like 3,000 people that came through my scene with me performing. Wow. Yeah, I couldn't get a ticket, which, you know, is, it's is problematic in itself. Lots of but... famous people got tickets. They? Yes, they did. And I, I wonder how that happened. I wonder how that happened. <laughs> <laughs> um, and talking of famous people, one woman who came through was Ruby Wax. And I think she said this on a testimonial, so I'm not... Um... Oh, yeah,
0: she's talked about it a lot, actually.
1: Uh, definitely. I don't ever want to, um, if it's a private conversation, I wouldn't want to break that kind of confidence. But because I think she said this publicly, she also said it to me in the bar afterwards. Um, she came over to me, and we were just chatting, and I said that I was a therapist. And then she said, what kind of therapy? And we're talking about that. And then she said, oh, you should just do this every night. She was like, this, this she said is the cheapest, which I thought was interesting, she called it cheap. But this is the cheapest therapy I've ever had. She said to have a room of people shouting your name or to be challenged in one moment and then to be rushed to excitement in the next moment. She was like, I've never felt so alive as I do in that 45 minutes in that space. Oh wow. and I think that's not just the Yumi Bum Bum train thing, although I think the one on one thing certainly heightens that mm-hmm. because you're constantly the, the focus of the experience for 45 minutes, which you know, is quite um, intense. And if we're going to talk about hypnosis, that's trance inducing in itself to have all those eyes on you for, for so long. But I think it, I, I don't think that having 30 or 40 people in a group should necessarily be an obstacle to people having that kind of heightened experience. No. I just think it's about how you manage the group and what people are doing in every moment. Um, I'm going to throw the gauntlet down. I haven't yet seen a piece that have done it as effectively as Yumu Bumbum Train did one-to-one on a bigger group.
0: On a big scale. But I think we
1: just haven't quite got the um, ingredients and the dynamic right yet. But I think all the pieces Mm -hmm. are there. It's just what I love about the fact that Punch Drunk had what, in my opinion, was a bit of a fail is that the market is now wide open for someone to take the crown of immersive king or queen yeah. and I think we live in a really exciting time where we're just around the corner from a show and I have no idea what company it'll be yeah. that really blows everyone's mind with the next step of where well, it's going. Well it's interesting them. in
0: academia because people are just really talking about the same few companies and uh-huh. I am working on a bit I will get it written at some point where I want to expose a few more of the kind of other times, kind of things that are happening as well um, but it is a little frustrating as an academic because the same things kind of just keep coming up and there's so many other things that are happening but you're right I think at the moment the scene is very open for other people to start to kind of come forward and push forward and push forward other modes because at the moment there is a lot of pressure and from audiences as well and expectations that if it's not the way that Punch Drunk do it yeah. it's kind of not immersive There sure And so I think, yeah, there is this kind of, I I get the feeling that something's going to happen or something's going to come along that's kind of going to blow things up and open again. And it
1: might not be something shiny and new. So um, a brilliant piece I saw just last month was uh, Specifics. Uh, Becky Brown and Oscar Bluston did um, a piece called "Raising Suspicions mm-hmm. in the Tower Bridge Engine Room. And again, I saw a dress rehearsal. Although I loved it, but, but I shouldn't comment too much because it was a dress rehearsal. Yeah. But um, essentially, it's high. It was a basic murder mystery evening mm-hmm. that I think had been designed for a corporate group the night before, and they just wanted an audience to test it. And ah. um, first, so you know, um, several of us went in. But what was interesting was, so it was a traditional murder mystery. You went around and spoke to each character and interviewed them. But then, at some point in the evening, it turned into a much more open world you could walk around and be anywhere and talk to any of the characters. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that was one of those moments where it felt alive because, um, and I know this just from talking to Becky, it was alive. So yeah. the audience yeah. had been, I'm uh, sorry, the actors had been drilled within an inch of their life about the timeline, what had happened. Uh, yeah. Sorry, it wasn't a murder because they weren't allowed a murder in the Tower of a it was a, dis- <laughs> it was a disappearance. A <laughs> disappearance, murder. okay. Um, and um, <laughs> they they knew exactly what what the disappearance had happened. So actually that gave the audience complete freedom to question them about anything or to um, try and get combinations of them together oh, or to try no and provoke no. fights between them. And, um, it was just a really interesting thing. And I thought with complete respect to specific, this isn't something that's brand new and never been done before, no, but I've never seen it done in that style before. Mm-hmm. And that style was really alive and exciting. And mm-hmm. I think, uh, I'm not saying murder mystery is the way that immersive theater should go, but I guess it's probably something that's quite basic about storytelling plus technology plus immersive that will, um, and hopefully with agency and and some political change. We'll
0: kind of shift those things along. Yeah. And I, yeah, I think the relationship with the gaming world is becoming uh, much more obvious now. And I think we're starting to really recognize some of those things that we use different language to talk about them as well, but actually realizing we're doing some of the same things, uh, especially in terms of mechanics and it's kind of interesting, because you're right, a lot of experiences, they sort of train you, so you're a bit more led at the beginning, uh-huh. which is kind of like the way you are, you know when you start, I only play Tomb Raider really, and <laughs> <laughs> a little big planet, but in Tomb Raider you sort of train a little bit first, it shows you how to do all the things, and then you kind of get to go and play the game, Yeah, if that makes sense, and I sometimes feel that's actually the way the mechanics operate sometimes, and things are a bit more open world, you kind of get a little bit of a sense of... Sort of being led, being eased in, being taught the rules of the space, being taught the rules of the world before you're then kind of released. (laughs) Sure, (laughs) it's true. to, To sort of manage that. And I thought it's just so much like gaming. It's so much like that experience of even just, you know, sliding the game in and turning it on. It's actually a very similar mechanic that rests underneath that
1: completely and i think there's a there's a new trend which i don't like um so i'm only saying this on the podcast because it's again a challenge to anyone listening to this and I'm, i know a lot of your listeners are practitioners like so, to to kind of meet this challenge which is that i come from a game theory background as well so i'm, I'm really interested in the rules of games and the rules of engagement mm-hmm. and i think when the immersive theater is at its best in my opinion is um again to use jason warren's phrase in his book is elegance which is the audience coming cold and you teach them the rules as part of the plot um, and as part of the experience. Yeah. Um, I think maybe it's because of logistical challenges or health and safety reasons. Um, I've been seeing a few pieces of immersive theater recently which have been great pieces in themselves, but at the beginning, either a stage manager or a usher or a member yeah, of the team comes along not a, not in character and in says, world. you're allowed to do this, you're not allowed to do this. And I think yeah. it's just such a wasted opportunity.
0: Weirdly, zombie things do it very, very well. Oh, absolutely. In worlds, because world, I've been to a couple and they terrify me. I don't know why <laughs> i go. They find them absolutely terrifying. But, um, they do that in-world very, very well. But then it's those kind of military or police kind of situations that you're in. So I think their worlds allow that kind of... Because they have really strict health and safety stuff that needs to be adhered. needs to be signed and delivered yeah, all totally. of that. So that must be a real challenge to get that. But they, they're usually very, very good at getting that in-world. And I think you're right. It's when... If you're given rules... And I like um, when I get something beforehand that yes. I have to remember. But again, not if it's just please don't do this and please do this or please <laughs> yeah. don't do that. I like it if it's in in world and it starts to set up the aesthetic for me, it starts to set up those characters for me, it starts to set up that space for me before I even kind of get there. And I think some companies use that as a
1: Yeah, so so Blast Theory with the Aarhus Experience Centres four short films which, which set up the world which was a nice preamble and then People's mm. Revolt. I think one thing they did beautifully was um, And I know they've spoken about it on the podcast before, so I won't just repeat everything I've said, um, but it was that pre-engagement stuff, so to start getting people yeah. into the world. It then presents a problem, though, I think, in any immersive piece that you have an audience who have arrived, who have um, engaged with every single sentence in, in that stuff, sorted out the puzzles, been online, done yeah, all yeah, sorts yeah. of things. And then you've got people who have never been to an immersive theatre piece before, haven't looked at any of that stuff. Yeah. And it's about how do you quickly engage everyone, reward people who are engaging. Regardless,
0: yeah. But not um, punish those. I year. went online because when I arrived, I was kind of, I'm i always here early because I have to travel down to London. Sure. So I need to make sure I'm on time so I get here early. And so there was me messaging on the board saying, Hi, I'm here early. There's a security guard wandering around. Yeah. <laughs>
1: Nothing.
0: Oh, <laughs> no one else in my group responded or was using the forum at all. So I was kind of like be oh. owl.
1: Oh that's really sad. Did you not get a response from John and Andrew? Because I know sometimes if audience <laughs> members were really keen and they felt sorry for them, they'd engage as an audience member. So people I mean I'm joking about it, but also for that exact reason, so an audience member would be rewarded for engaging. Yeah, yeah,
0: no, no, I didn't on that. Maybe day, this was so. in the early days.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe.
0: But I think and actually I'm weirdly I'm teaching um a little bit with my students at the moment. They're about to next week. Uh, it's closed. It's not open to the public. They're doing. It's going to be. It's going to be horrific in, in a good way. They're doing an immersive version of Titus Andronicus. Amazing. <laughs> so it's going to be the most horrific dinner party I've kind of ever been sure. to. So I'm marking that. And um, they are only now just starting to realise kind of the complexities of <laughs> engaging, manoeuvring, mechanic and they need it to run for a specific time because, as well, it's for an assessment. And so they're just starting to kind of engage with that. And they also need a pre-engagement because it's health and safety. Okay. And they're like, how do we do that? Should we just give them their health and safety? <clears> and I'm like, God no, <laughs> don't do that. I was like, you need to build it in to the experience as they arrive and build it in-world, or you need to send a pre-engagement. But again, that needs to be... Kind of in world, totally. So I think at the moment they're airing towards sending people dinner invitations, my which sense. will have some bits and bobs in from
1: Titus. So been... which is elegant, you know, to <laughs> exactly. use that word again. It's I think these things don't have to be problems; they can be complete opportunities. Absolutely. Of how do I engage my audience more to solve this problem?
0: Mm-hmm. And then they said, can we just send them because they like they wouldn't like it to be digital; they'd like it to be a little kind of envelope with a seal and everything. I was like, yeah, well, we can do that because i can put things in staff's pigeonholes <laughs> <laughs> at work. So it's kind of easy to do, but they're really enjoying that kind of freedom, but also really recognising some of the massive challenges that come because none of them have done any of that kind of work before. So they're really enjoying it. Like yeah, uh, throwing them at the deep end. But I also keep having to remind them about the ethics as well because I like, we just terrify them here and I'm like, They're also people, yeah, (laughs) and you have to be really mindful of when you're engaging people with really disturbing and really difficult topics to work with, so it's kind of a bit in the deep end for them. Yeah, absolutely. But they're safe, because I said to them, you know, it's drama lecturers coming, and drama students coming to your work, so you're going to get, I said, in some respects you have to take a lot of it with a pinch of salt, because Mm -hmm. they're going to respond in very different ways to how the kind of general public would. If that Uh, makes sense, it's like in terms of your learning, always bear that in mind, that your mates who are coming, that people are studying drama with you.
1: Absolutely, and the risk of sounding like a broken record, but I think what you're really saying to them as well there is to listen. So, Mm -hmm. And I'm talking about listening with your eyes here too, which is the most (laughs) wanky thing I've (laughs) ever said. But um, if when you're a a performer or an actor and you have an audience member in that space, you can see all the information you need with your eyes and your ears about um, where is their um, comfort zone, how close can you get in proximity? Mm-hmm. Where can you take this conversation? And that needs to be a judgment in every second. of Absolutely. You know, how much information is this person giving me? To use Meisner's kind of language, do they like it or dislike it? Just in every moment, that question, do they yeah. like it or dislike it? And if they like it, then you can go in closer as long as it's appropriate for the piece and you feel comfortable. Yeah. And if they dislike it, then it's time to elegantly disengage I've and pick someone I've asked them to else. build
0: in moments where people can opt out or disengage, uh, but again, in that, that kind of world. Sure. Um, <laughs> I was like because you're dealing with really grotesque kind of themes sure. and horror-based themes as well. You know, it's incest, eating people, cannibalism. <laughs> um,
1: one of my um, <laughs>
0: they need to out
2: if they want to. <laughs>
1: <laughs> one of my favorite moments in Bum Train because they would say to the audience that you can opt out at any point by saying "time out" three times, and the scene will stop. The actors will drop character, and then um, in okay. three minutes before the next scene, you'll have a choice whether to exit the ride. Um, they call it the ride to so the train, yeah, or to go to the to the next scene. And then um, one night uh, in my scene, Evan Davis, the presenter of Newsnight, came to be an actor with me. Oh. And the two of us, I won't say what the scene is, although i probably can kind of given it away by what I've just said, <laughs> and would be presenting some TV show, um, which I would normally present, but that evening, because we had Evan Davis in it, we, we co-presented it together. So that's quite a lot for some audience members that they walk into this scene, uh, that, which might or might not have been a TV studio of, of uh, some TV program. And then we would begin to grill them about politics. Um, and this one audience member time out three times. So we had to turn all the lights on. But then this audience member had a much more bizarre scene, which is he had three minutes with the real Evan Davis and me, where we didn't have a, a, a yeah. scene or a narrative, just yeah, asking yeah. him if he was if OK. okay. <laughs> <laughs> and this, this poor um, audience member was just like, I was just thrown because I recognised you from TV. And then they just had a chat. And I oh. thought, he's almost had a more surreal experience. Yeah, there. yeah, and, absolutely. Because just kind of jumping in. out. Um,
0: to come back a little bit to what you were talking about, Um, before we've had lots of people keep talking to us about our work and saying you should use this as a therapy or you should think about how and we never even thought about that when we put the piece of work together and you know you're saying the same it's really interesting actually how some of these techniques are actually going to have I think potential value outside of kind of the creative cultural industries effectively and have some potential huge implications in other Mm
2: -hmm.
0: fields and more kind of applied fields as well and it's kind of interesting because every time it's happened it's We've kind of you go ah you go oh my god how did I not even realize that what we're actually doing here is giving people a very specific cathartic experience that might be considered to be therapeutic and yeah. we never even thought about it in that way because we have that mindset of thinking about mechanic of thinking about facilitation and experience uh-huh. when of course actually what we're doing there is is offering people this cathartic kind of experience and I think that's so interesting as well that there's I think there's a lot of potential for this work to kind of I hate using the term, do good, but sure. have potential impact outside yeah. of entertainment. I
1: would almost argue, um, in, in agreeing with everything that you said, that there's almost no way it can't. Yeah. If the um, actors, performers and the piece is present, if it's not present, then the audience will be bored and it won't necessarily do anything. But if it's alive and it's real then there's no way that the audience can leave the space the same person the as same when they person, went in yeah, because they've had an experience. What they do with that experience is largely about the intention and the framing that the piece sets up. And if you explicitly say to someone, you need to go and do this or have a think <laughs> about this, which, you know, probably wouldn't be that elegant. But often there's metaphorical ideas or, or reflections to go yeah. on. Um, I went to ZUK's UK's um, dinner date the other yes, day. Yes, me which too. <laughs> I think I missed you by an hour, actually. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. It's because
0: I had a very tight train to catch. So. Sure.
1: um <laughs> And my um uh my date I think I mean I absolutely loved the experience anyway. I just thought it was a great experience. Um but my date I think had a particularly powerful experience and he just said, um just outed myself there. and he just no, <laughs> that's a problem. Um he just said that uh at the end he was just a bit teary about the whole thing. Yeah. Um and and um really quite choked up about a few things and I just thought um, partly, I'm not going to take credit for that. It's the piece. The piece was um, really elegantly and it was beautifully really done, elegantly done, and I think just had a nice style. And there was obvious dynamics going on, but they were subtly done. So as an audience member, um, I'm sure you probably do this even more than me because of these podcasts. It's really hard for me to switch off that um, observer voice of, "Oh, this is going on." This I was is saying rare.
0: that to George before I went in. I was like, "Sometimes I wish I could not be me. Sure, <laughs> I could put aside." all of the history and the the academia and all of that to just kind of enter an experience kind of fresh because sure. that's never going to happen again yeah, absolutely. and uh, yeah I, sometimes I genuinely wish I could kind of do that because it does bring baggage and there's nothing you can do yeah and it does impact on you the way you experience and the way you play I well. agree I don't know
1: what your experience was of this but I found it easier to let go of my baggage and that piece than I normally do
0: yeah I did and also I was with a woman as okay. well uh, and, and I'm straight so that was really interesting sure I really enjoyed actually being able to to kind of reframe some of those uh, kind of uh, conventions yeah, that's that I wouldn't do with a woman normally. Uh-huh. So I that I found really interesting. But again, I felt that I was being slightly objective, objective rather than letting myself. And I kept there were moments when I did kind of fall into it, and I was kind of really enjoying and kind of forgot myself in some moments. But sure. again, yeah, it was. I found it a little easier to kind of sit and observe a little bit. Uh, and
1: that's interesting because I was there, and this is really unusual for me. <clears throat> Less for a piece of theatre and more for a date, and there is a a, oh, a yeah. bit of history to that, which is um okay. about uh, it's a very quick story. About five months ago, a TV company approached me and said they're doing a version of dinner date, and um, would I be willing to uh, first date? Sorry, would I be willing to go on it? I was like, absolutely not. I'm not going on TV <laughs> doing that. And um, they said it's a pilot version, and um, so it'll never be on TV. And all we do is right. go through your social media. Um, all of it, your Twitter, your Facebook, and we try and find someone that we think will match based on our algorithms, right. to which I was too interested and said, okay, as long as that's yeah, not the TV, I want to see who you put in front of me. Um, so I went out and bought a new outfit because I thought, I'm literally about to meet the man of my dreams here, you know, I'm ready for this. Um, so I get to this swanky restaurant in Soho and I'm about to meet with a date and the producer says to me just before I go in, he says, um, just so you know, your date is hard of hearing, so he has an earpiece. And don't mention it because he's a bit sensitive about it. And I was like, that's not not a problem at all. Thanks. Thanks for yeah, letting thanks me know. Heads up. Um, so I sit down on the date and my date is just very, very strange, very strange and doesn't match anything of the criteria that we've spoken about. <laughs> um, and he's asking me questions like, are you worried about Kanye West? And I was like, well, I am worried about him because of blah, blah, blah. And then his things get more and more weird. And then in my head, I'm looking at the TV equipment and I'm thinking for a pilot, this is too expensive. There's too much going on it's here. Like you're doing um, so actually, in my head, I thought it was on the Michael McIntyre show or something like yes! that. I thought it was one of those like prank things, and it turned yeah. out it was a prank thing, but it was still a pilot prank. Right. He had an earpiece to the producer, and he was only talking in tweets. And the idea was, what if you dated oh. someone who spoke like they do on social media? Oh so God. just in 146 or whatever it is now characters. <laughs> um, I'm incapable. Of that. <laughs> Yeah, it's True Me Too. And the best bit of all of this is the producer afterwards, because they've done this three times, said, um, you were the best in terms of dealing with it, but the least comedy, because he said you just weren't flustered. You just, you right, just had just a conversation. Like, I was like, I'm always happy to chat, and like I work in therapy, so people say like, odd things I'm to work me all in the time. Therapy
0: and I do immersive things. Exactly. So I, I deal with bots. And, and they said in the edit, day. they
1: didn't really have anything of me other than me just <laughs> responding to the questions, and sometimes oh, i pause to be like, did I really hear that right? And then just... <laughs> Respond. Anyway, the point of that story is I was really ready for a date because I kind of felt like they cheated me, and um, yeah. so then when I heard about this dinner date thing, I was like, oh wow, I'll be a boy who, who like is into immersive theatre and dating me sounds perfect. And then when I got there, they said to me, and um, would you be okay um being paired with a girl? And I said, I'd be completely okay with it. But if you could find me a boy somewhere, even if you have to go to the bar and be that like, are there any gay men better, here? Throw. It. <laughs> and she laughed. And I think sure enough, I did do because they, they had a boy in front of me. And um, so anyway, the whole point of that is I went in sincerely for a date. So actually I found that I switched off a bit of my immersive oh. dynamic. And actually I'm, I'm hoping he never hears this. I didn't fancy him at all physically. But actually, over an hour of that experience being so intense and so connected, mm. if he'd been more on it at the end, because uh, at the end, he did say something that alluded that he was more interested. Um, okay. And at the very end, he um, if he'd said to me, do you want to go for a drink now? I probably would have said yes, because it had been quite an intense, connected experience. Um, and uh, I wouldn't necessarily call that therapeutic. But I do think that I've not been the same person from the hour before as the hour after, because actually... It was an hour of being vulnerable with a complete stranger, Yes. Um, answering questions, genuinely listening and responding. Mm-hmm. And I think both of us changed. And I think maybe for him, he wasn't an actor, uh, wasn't an immersive actor, Um, we're quite used to that experience of being very vulnerable and just responding in the moment. Yeah. I think for an average member of the public, that's an incredibly powerful experience.
0: Yeah, I, I agree. I agree. And I think it's about taking care, isn't it? And, and care, care to be careful and care. Of someone when you're facilitating in that kind of situation, and for also sure. being open to being vulnerable in that way. Yes, but there has to be the right conditions mm-hmm. for people. Like for me, I'm a fool. I'll jump in and play whatever sure. the conditions. But that's because of who I am and my background and my experience. And you become a kind of professional immersive theatre goer.
2: Sure, I think. Yeah, absolutely.
0: <laughs> in a kind of really <laughs> strange way. Um, and I always, and I always say this as well. I always think to myself. Could my Nan just jump in and do this? Because she doesn't do that kind of thing. Oh, that's she a doesn't. really nice uh, tester. I think: would, would she feel cared for? Would she feel able to take risk? And would she feel able to be vulnerable in this situation? And would she understand what's going on? If not, then there might be problems.
1: <laughs> this is really interesting because it reminds me of a conversation that's going online, which I uh, uh, it's rare that I don't have an opinion on. It's just I have two opinions and they're opposite. So I don't know which one to go for, which is about trigger warnings on social media. Um, and I can completely see the need for them mm. and we should keep people in a safe space. But I also yeah. think, uh, so to give an example, I'm, I'm vegan, I have to slip that in somewhere. It's, you know, obligatory. Um, <laughs> and I think sometimes it is good for people to see um, some of the horrific stuff that goes on without being given the warning because it's happening. So we should know yeah. about it. So then I wonder with immersive theatre, how much responsibility do we have as theatre makers to make sure that our audience would paid a ticket? Uh, of course, they need to be physically safe. That goes without saying.
2: Absolutely. Um,
1: and as I say that, then I go, well, of course they need to be mentally safe then because it's yeah. not that really... It's but we a have
0: a different... duty to care that we that we care, if that makes sense. Yeah. So that we've taken care to think about those things, even if they're challenging or yeah. even if they're difficult, that we've taken the time to be careful in how we construct and how we operate that, even if it's something difficult to do.
1: That's nice. I, I like it. And I think... Um... In people's revolt I always had an internal rule because my character could be quite aggressive with people um uh, in terms of not calling them stupid but pretty much insinuating that and my rule always was in the next five minutes by the time the scenes moved they need to be in the same state as when I started attacking them or a better state yeah so it's fine to take them to a place where they do feel a bit vulnerable and silly for a as moment. long as then you then take responsibility for making sure that I'm now carrying this burden and this weight yeah and I'm going to make sure that we resolve this yeah. um but how do you legislate's a strong word in the of <laughs> theater but how do you um govern that with your actors if you're a director because that just requires a lot of trust in the skill of your actor
0: well this is the thing actually and this is one of the things in terms of thinking about training and there's very little training available yeah. that's specific um and i think that's one of the things that does need to be thought about is how do you how do you teach someone to have that kind of care yeah. and that kind of integrity and being able to read a space Mm -hmm. and read people and what is exactly like you said perhaps Meisner is 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 the answer (laughs) in terms of training because it is about responsiveness which means about listening
1: yeah that's interesting because I don't know if it's and and they didn't mean it like that the answer I think it's one of the one of the, one of the calls many, many um, and I'm curious what the others are and I, I think that's yeah. exciting similar to the work that you're doing at the moment with your students on Titus Andronicus one of the best projects I ever had was with the European Union um, with Erasmus funding mm-hmm. they used to give me 28 actors from every European Union country and they would come to London to um rehearse for two weeks and then we would create a piece of immersive political theatre great and the rule was that we weren't allowed to make Uh, we weren't allowed to make it commercial and the audience had to be a very small invited audience of friends which is why no one has ever heard about this theatre except I was going to say
0: I've not heard (laughs) so how has that happened? (laughs)
1: But the beautiful thing for the two weeks is that that would take all the pressure off a final process and actually it just became about how do we um, one, how do I take 28 young people, I'm saying young, you know, between 15 From and 25. From massively
0: different contexts. Exactly.
1: And, <laughs> and work on uh, caring for people about responsiveness, about listening. And also um, the problems that are usually with device work of all these different ideas and how can we come together. I should give a shout out to uh, Emmanuel Inagi and Riccardo Brunetti, who is a um, university lecturer in Bologna of a Masters in Immersive Theatre, and that I would do this alongside the two of them. And um, I I mean, I couldn't have done it without them. It was was their project initially, and they they brought me on board. Um, But uh, the pieces, um, and if any of the actors are listening to this, um, I apologise for this, uh, were car crashes sometimes, um, but fantastic car crashes that I absolutely was so proud of and so proud of every single one of them, um, because the rehearsal process, without a doubt, I think was some of the most special work that I've seen or made. Um, And sometimes there are things that can't be replicated. So it was ridiculous things of giving them a task to make an immersive piece of theatre in an hour, Mm -hmm. find a space in the building, (laughs) make this immersive piece of theatre, make it five minutes, we're all going to go around and do each other's bit. And 99% of the time you're watching it and you're not really in it and you're thinking, oh, they could have done this or they could have done this or they've done well in an hour. Mm -hmm. But every so often you get that gold nugget of an idea where you go, wow, that's magic. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think uh, the education space, so to come back to why I was referencing Titus Andronicus, I think to take that pressure off ticket prices, Mm -hmm. budget, logistics, building spaces rules of engagement, all those kind of things, to put those aside and just actually look at the work and the art Yeah. Um, is so important and so exciting.
0: And be like, yeah, pl- I want you to play. And, yes. And that's effectively, in some respects, especially when you're an educator in theatre, arts and drama, really you're kind of teaching people how to play. Yes. And teaching methodologies of play. And that is really privileged. I really, I really feel that, actually, on a daily basis. I'm really lucky to be in a position to teach people... And to facilitate, not even teach, it doesn't really teach at uni, but facilitate other people to find ways of playing and taking risks and find ways of finding failure a useful thing.
1: That's amazing. Thing. Um, <laughs> um, one exercise Ricardo used to do, and I don't know if he stole it from somewhere else although I, I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll let him have it. Um, is he would have the hub, so the community space that I guess in a punch drunk show would be the bar or the, most, most of the theatre pieces is usually a, a bar. Um, And he would, no one would have any character or anything. He would give the 28 actors responsibility for keeping that hub in the live space, where they did it through dance, song, character, Ah. but they were to be in character all the time. And he said, at any point that you want, you take someone by the hand and take them to another place in the space and tell a bit of our collective story, however Mm -hmm. you do that. And maybe two of you take one person and you improvise on the spot or you make moments and then you come back to the hub. And we would play these games for six to eight hours, so, durational work. Durational, and
2: yeah.
1: Again, I'm very interested in trance states, um, in music, in repetition. Mm-hmm. And um, I guess, uh, I never thought of this at the time so I'm saying this out loud now, is I was this single audience member. Uh, in fact, Manuel and e. Ricardo too were the three single audience members, sorry. Um, because all the performers would be in this piece, creating yeah, this course. piece. And we, one of the rules was that you just, you ignored us so you didn't take us anywhere. Um, because we always wanted to just see see the bigger picture and yeah. not always actually Ricardo and Emanuele would always have that rule and sometimes I would say actually I, I want to play um, yeah. so I would be one of the one of the audience members and actors Um, I can't remember where my point was going well you than need to get exciting. inside
0: and this is a real difficulty because um, the students have asked are you going to observe ah uh, yeah okay. and I was like well I'm marking it so I can't really observe I kind of have to do it yeah that's true so it's really difficult because there is that level of obviously during the rehearsals and stuff I've done both I've kind of been guinea pig for them and then <laughs> observe But as a marker with this kind of work, you're like, oh, that's actually really challenging. You're like, do you just observe other people participating? And in which case, actually, you're fundamentally causing a flaw in that performance anyway, if you do that. Because you're a presence that's in the space but shouldn't be there. So that's awkward and a bit weird and might Mm -hmm. mess up the dynamics. But then if you play, (laughs) then also you have to try and recall all of that afterwards because you can't take notes while you're playing either. That's In that, so interesting. It's really, it's going to be a massive challenge. This year it's not too bad, cause it's like one or two things, but next year I'm going to be doing a whole unit on it. So I need to give it some really careful consideration of what's going to be my methodology of how I assess.
1: And I've never thought about, so um, they have the, the thing they call the punch drunk stare, but I would say again, it's mm. just, um, they've marketed it as that, not marketed branded as <laughs> that. But essentially I see it as, you know, it's hypnotic, it's a point of connection. It's an actor listening to, to an audience member. But you almost can't know how powerful that is from a performer unless you're the person who is receiving that energy. But if you're mm-hmm. receiving that energy, then very often you're not present. You're very present in that moment. You're in what I'd call a know-nothing state, which is a mm-hmm. hypnosis NLP term, which is literally knowing nothing. Um, you're just in a moment where your thoughts, your internal dialogue is gone. But if you're in that moment, how can you be marking <laughs> Exactly. And so that's interesting. It's kind
0: of weird. And I was reading as well, it takes seven seconds apparently of of direct eye contact to become familiar with somebody. Yeah, I've heard that too before. Yeah, so I've been playing with, I I quite like the idea of that. But yeah, it's hard. When I'm in the moment, how am I, I, if I'm genuinely in the moment, how am I going to kind of be reflective in terms of assessing that? So... That's a skill. Luckily, I'm a practitioner as a researcher, so I officially have lots of methodologies for reflecting in moments of actually doing. (laughs) (laughs) Officially. That's interesting. (laughs) But it is still a problem. It is still always a problem, because even when you're reflecting in the moment of doing because that that informs your decisions, the big issue is always, again, evidencing it afterwards and capturing, recapturing it afterwards as a way of then being able to reflect on it post having made decisions because of course as an immersive audience member you make decisions yeah in the moment you are reflexive because you're responding all the time to everything that's happening but yeah so I think that might be another another big discussion in academia in the it's coming true. years is how does one assess this kind of work in a robust and I don't know if this has ever, ever
1: been discussed but there's an interesting dynamic too about audience members that you know which is an immersive performer happens all, all the, time the time, because we're all going to see each other. Like Liam, Paul, Liam. Uh, yeah, of course. <laughs> I just
0: bump into Liam constantly.
1: It, it's true, and, I, I, and in fact, Liam's a good example. So I was in his piece at Boomtown, um, which, which was about um, a New Age kind of therapy. Um, it was a beautiful piece that Liam directed and designed, and really, really enjoyed doing it. And I think generally the rule that's kind of thrown around is that and I agree is that you treat an audience member that you know like any other audience member yeah. and you don't enlarge your relationship outside and you go. Um I think there's a deceit in that though, or there is personally in my there experience, is. which is when I look into that uh, the eyes of an audience member I know it it is fundamentally a different experience yeah. than a complete stranger because you already have you already information have about each other. Yeah. Um and so what you do with that I guess is you pretend that's not going on and you get on with it. Mm. But the pretense for me almost Breaks the authenticity of the experience. You I have agree. You I,
0: it does that same thing again, doesn't it? That we we're talking about. Earlier? it puts up that that fourth wall weirdly again, yes. and sort of pretends because it's a pretending yes. uh, not to acknowledge something about you that you would know.
1: That's totally true. <laughs> and so um, the time I really uh, noticed this was in People's Revolt. Andrew. Um, so because the other people that I was showing the role with, it was their first time. Um, they gave the audience members in one of the first preview to to them. So so they could get that experience. Mm -hmm. And so I just ran through the experience for timing at the same time without an audience. I literally just had Andrew. So for (laughs) an hour, I gave Andrew a show and he was amazing at
2: um, playing
1: like he didn't understand what was going on and not knowing... (laughs) But you got into, like, rooms where you'd have, like, 25 minutes where you'd normally have an audience, and, you know, it's Yeah, easy. lots of a few and, different people. Exactly, yeah. you just have one person. And um, Andrew <laughs> <laughs> did brilliantly at just kind of playing. Part of me just wanted to get. I think I was ill that day as well. Part of me, when oh, we got God. into a room, I wanted to go, can we just pretend that the scene's happened and we'll, we'll move we'll, on in 12 we'll move minutes? On, yeah. But I didn't. I, I kind of stuck with it. But it did occur to me afterwards that Andrew and John are almost the only two people who will have never seen a genuine performance of that show. Yeah. Because when we look into their eyes the relationship is fundamentally different it's
0: interesting <laughs> that you say that because this is exactly something someone brought up last time we did our show which was Muslim Brighton um, the other performer because there were two of us because we are doing it durationally so we okay. took it in turns and um, she's she's the one who uh, suggested she's like you've never experienced your own shows ever she's like it's about you it's autobiographical is this the because, wedding um, the no this rug. is um, and the piece that we did here as well uh, which she was all cried out um <laughs> i trying to remember everything for them this year. Because I'm always performing, uh-huh. and I wrote them, and I constructed them, and I facilitate them. So I've I've seen bits of it, obviously, with sure. the bits that other people do. But again, I've never had a genuine experience. I have no idea how it feels to do my show. Uh-huh. And I never will know Sure. That. And that's a strange... <laughs> yeah, that's so true. ...situation to be in. And as makers, I don't know what that means yeah. and how problematic that is, but it is strange. Yeah, and it was actually at one of my other performers said, Oh, yeah, you'll never... Like, you literally can't do, ever do your own show, one, because you're performing in it, yeah. and two, because you have a very different relationship with that material. Yeah, so even because if you weren't yours, performing in it,
1: yeah, exactly. Yeah. Whereas the director in a traditional piece can watch the piece, and of course they've got a relationship with it. Yeah. But they can, I think it's much easier to see it as any other audience member would, because the actors aren't looking yeah. directly into their eyes. Uh, whereas, yeah, exactly, when you change that. But theme, then they've
0: rehearsed, you know, yeah, so I think it's that's really interesting, which yeah. means we always have a, a very different perspective on it too, and how an audience always will. Yeah. Which is strange. In some way, their experience is kind of unknowable yeah. to us, genuinely. It makes me feel
1: a little bit sad for them. Yeah. <laughs> I think you've done all this work, and you, you're the only person who does. We never know get it.
0: to know. And then, because you you're inside that process, going to other pieces of work, and that must be the same for you as well. Always, there is always that is always that kind of strange sense of knowing and, re- and noticing mechanics and noticing those things. Is what I'm just like, shut up, brain, just let me have fun. Yeah.
1: <laughs> I think i um, One of the first immersive pieces I ever did was maybe in, uh, maybe not the right year, but 2007, which was the Dickens of a Christmas, Mm -hmm. which was in the um, shunt vault. (coughs) Sorry, my cold. Um, And then the company were fine, but I really didn't enjoy the experience. And I didn't yet know what immersive theatre was. And the Um. way it was framed to us as actors was that we all had to have a skill that we performed to the audience. So um, I think it was probably about 50 of us in the cast. It was huge. Um, and there were like magicians or, um, singers or, guitar. so people would go up and they would, they would do a skill. Mm-hmm. And I can't even remember what my skill was <laughs> meant to be at the time, but I just remembered feeling really, um, uh, inadequate as, yeah. as a performer that I didn't have anything to give to the audience. And if someone had just had this conversation with me and said, actually, it's not about you, it's about the audience member and your skill could just be good questions to, to yeah. draw an experience out of them. I would have absolutely loved it. But because I didn't know anything about immersive Theatre, I felt, um, the set was incredible. It was, um. I think it was the entire Shunt Vaults, um, so I mean, it was wow. huge, um, that had been created to uh, represent Dickensian London, oh my God, um, so you would come beautiful. down in the lift and it would be snowing and there'd be a pond and a graveyard, and I was playing the young Scrooge, so in fact that was my skill actually, was walking around as young Scrooge being grumpy at people, <laughs> <laughs> so you know, that wasn't a great skill, um, but the old curiosity shop was there and the workhouse was there, so oh, the audience no. could just walk around and, and respond. Yeah. Um, but we didn't yet have the dynamics of immersive theatre, so there was no narrative as such, just as an actor you would wander around. So and... it's more
0: of an installation in some respects.
1: Yes, and I think it was mainly corporate groups, and it was a free bar, and I think most of the time you felt like you were interrupting them from getting Something drunk. that is never <laughs> talked
0: about, actually, which is really interesting, is the role that free bars and the role that bars and the sale of alcohol as central hubs within immersive theatre. No one's really... yeah. Adam mentions it a little bit in his book about that, but actually there's a very specific kind of dynamic that happens and actually also what's not talked about for young makers which is helpful is actually the role that plays as well in funding Uh, and supporting the model of some of the bigger shows too so i think that again is a discussion that kind of needs to be brought to the fore and needs to be talked about kind of some of the way the economic models of these this work and how they operate sometimes around kind of a bar
1: (laughs) Totally, I, th- <laughs> I think as you're speaking, there's two things there too. So there's the economics models, which is definitely one conversation. Yeah. And then there's also, um, so I uh, should preface this with I'm um, a non-drinker, non-smoker, non-drug taker, um, but the um, pe- the influence of people under something, and Boomtown was an interesting experience for me. <laughs> Very interesting experience. It's um, a
0: festival, isn't it? If anyone's listening. Oh, yeah, sorry. So it's a, a
1: festival which is, I think, mainly known for its music. Yeah. Um, but then it has the most phenomenal immersive theatre scene. Um. I think literally hundreds of actors and lots of different theatre companies all doing things. And some really, really beautiful work. And Martin Coates, who um, heads up um, the immersive immersive side of things, who was also one of the performers in People's Revolt, um, does an incredible job. So this is in no way um, a slight, which of course makes it sound like a slight because I (laughs) pre-framed it like that. Um, But I think it would be... um, obvious if i didn't mention that drugs is a huge part of the boomtown culture absolutely Um, i think there were very few people there who who weren't sober and so um the free liberal part of me goes that's great people are having this freedom to explore Mm -hmm. and to live in this immersive Mm -hmm. theater piece and to not have rules and to go anywhere and part of me feels like it's so sad that i would love to create an immersive world where anyone can go anywhere and do anything at the level that boomtown is doing it yeah and have everyone have everyone be sober so they could have a genuine experience at the moment but we're in a much more philosophical conversation but it's very interesting
0: though isn't it because mo- nearly everything i get sent a precursor saying you won't be accept you won't be allowed in if you drink or take drugs sure. but then when you get here yeah everyone's drunk everyone's drunk <laughs> yeah. and there's access and it's directly encouraged of course because it's part of that economic model as well yeah. of how that 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 work is enabled is enabled um, so I think that's very interesting. Yeah. And in not terms. everyone's drunk. That's not. fair, No, is not it? not everyone is drunk. I think not they suggest you have
1: a pint drunk. for Dutch courage and then get on with yes. it, which which <laughs> seems like a reasonable balance of alcohol. Yeah, absolutely. But, but um, I have
0: had performances boiled by other drunk audiences audience members. Okay. Yeah, when they're under the influence, yeah, which is a massive shame. Yeah,
1: and another um really interesting challenge is uh, I think um the actors uh, or facilitators of the Crystal Mates experience this all the time about what to do when you have a group who are well up for it what to do when you have a group that don't even know what crystal maze are and they're at work with their their mates sorry and they're not really mates so they don't want to sit in front of their boss (laughs) and probably the much harder one is what when you've got a mixture so people are really up for it and then people who aren't and how do you find that balance
0: (laughs) (laughs) and you always get sometimes um because you'll get someone who comes along who's really, really excited but might bring someone with them um, who's never been before yeah. either. So you're, you've often got kind of really, really, really keen audience members and then some who potentially have been brought along as a partner or brought along because they were, like, encouraged to come. Totally. it. Takes <laughs> it. And so you've always got a little bit of a range, haven't you? I think no matter what the piece of work is, it's not always kind of just die hard. <laughs> yeah, it's true. And
1: I've, I've realised that our, that our framing of this conversation, completely understandably, because of the nature of where we sit, is that die hard is the positive way to go. Yeah, We absolutely. want everyone to yeah, really we love want it.
0: everyone to be die hard. <laughs> and, but actually,
1: maybe it's fine for amazing pieces of immersive there to be created and for people to sit passively observing yeah. and still have an experience. It's just not the experience that we personally want in our subjectivity. Exactly. Um, but... You know, as I'm saying, it's like, no, but it's it's not valid because <laughs> th- that it's not emotionally affecting them and it's not going to take yeah. them to another place. Um, but maybe it does. I guess you've got to go to where people are at rather than yank them by the arm and take them with you. Or and it own.
0: depends on the context. Like in a bigger space, you can afford or in a, in a broader piece, you can afford to have people who don't necessarily engage. Yeah, I do one on one. So if that person who comes <laughs> doesn't want to engage... That's it. It's over. But I suspect you would never book a one on one show if you were not interested in doing one on one performances. That's true. (coughs) Although
1: never underestimate the ability (laughs) of an audience member to get themselves into an experience. Oh my God. Absolutely.
0: (laughs) Well, we've been talking for quite a while and um, I want to sort of bring things to a close and i probably will talk to you again another point. There's so much to talk about. Um, What can people do if they want to find out kind of what you're currently doing or yeah. want to kind of follow news about you? What's the best way for them to yeah, do that? I
1: guess I'm a more unusual one than uh, your usual. Yeah, because a lot, cause a lot of people
0: have like big websites and things. So it's, yeah, uh,
1: To be honest, it's Twitter, which is at Zach Polanski. Um, I'm an active member of the Green Party and the electoral Great. reform movement, so they'll have to deal with some of that being mixed in with the stuff. Fine. Um, but to be fair, there's a lot of immersive <laughs> theatre and a lot of kind of um, VR type stuff there too. So that's all generally going on. And I'm also... Um, I know some people have very personal Facebooks and some people's Facebooks are much more open and mine's very open. Yeah, yeah. I'm always happy for people to send me an ad on there and to get involved in conversations.
0: Great, so Twitter or Facebook, basically, social exactly. media. Yes, <laughs> indeed, social media all the way. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much for taking time the to, pleasure. It's to been talk fun. to me. It's been brilliant. And um, also, thank you to CoLab for letting us yes. crash and uh, uh, be in their basement.
1: They've even got, <laughs> we should say, they've got two shows going on upstairs simultaneously. Uh, Great Gatsby and the Bacchae. And then they've got a podcast going on underneath. That's that's immersive theatre, right? Exactly. There. <laughs> so
0: do come down to the shows. In fact, there's always shows going on actually yeah. at the kind uh, of
1: factory. And they've so. got a show on next week, I think, called "Keep Calm and Carry On." Yes. Um I was going to try and summarise what it's about, from the, <laughs> but I, I won't because I will butcher Go it. I'm nothing to pick do it. it all
0: <laughs> it. up and come down. It would be great to have you here. Well, thank you very much. Thank, thank, thank you. you. I hope you enjoyed that episode. As usual, I would love to hear from you. You can tweet at me at tape or scroll on our Facebook wall, you can even email me directly on talkingaboutimmersivetheatre at gmail.com. That's talkingaboutimmersivetheatre at gmail.com. I realise that is really long and a bit of a mouthful, but tape wasn't available, I'm afraid. So uh, at the beginning of 2018, which it currently is, woohoo, uh, exciting things are afoot at the BAC, which is Battersea Arts Centre, and at the CoLab Factory, so make sure you don't miss out and get down to London Town. Right, until next month, Happy New Year!